0: promise I was not trying to get revenge on you for anything Chris in making you read that or get back at you in any way in fact I actually appreciate uh, your invitation to come here and have appreciated everybody uh, in welcoming me here it's been really good and really encouraging and so when I go back to Crossroads uh, my church I'll be able to report back and say uh, we had a great time at the Rural Bible Forum and there's lots of really wonderful godly Christians there and they'll, you know, they'll be really glad to hear that. So thanks again for having me and uh, thanks Chris for the invite. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, um, we um, come now before your word um, very aware of our need, our need of your spirit to take this word and make it a living word a word which is able to teach, correct, rebuke and encourage. We ask, Lord, that you would please do that. We are are fully reliant on you. We are reliant on your grace just to even um, understand this word and then do what it says. So please help us in every way. And please, O Lord, as we go from here later on um, this afternoon, we ask that we'll be carrying these things in our hearts and you'll be stirring us up to remember these things and to live in accordance with them. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, tonight's, uh, sorry, this afternoon's topic is justice and righteousness. What does it mean to yearn for justice and righteousness? Jesus talks about people who eagerly desire it. Even, he says, you know, they hunger and thirst for it. They want it so bad. But what does that mean? What do they actually want? What are they after? We know that some wealthy, powerful people, they don't want to see justice and righteousness. And the reason for that could be simple. Their wealth and their power and their privilege relies on injustice and unrighteousness for them to stay rich and stay wealthy. Others have to suffer so they can keep their place at the top of the pile. But for those who do want it in this world, do desire it, what are they yearning for? justice and righteousness. Well, this passage explains it in two ways. You need both. You need both. It's talking about David and talks about the victories he wins. That's number one. And then it talks about the goodness he brings. That's number two. So if you're taking notes, there they are. Point one, the victories he wins, the goodness he brings. And, And we're going to see what it means to want justice and righteousness in the world. First of all, then, victories. Have a look at verse one. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Mepheg from the control of the Philistines. And then go to verse 6. Verse 6 says, He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought him tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And then verse 14. Look at verse 14. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So what this is telling is is that, that God's kingdom is not just inevitable, it's also something that's necessary. So God's kingdom is not just bound to happen, nothing you can do about it, nothing you can do to stop it, it's bound to happen. It also must happen. That's because David is the Lord's king. David's kingship belongs to, comes from the Lord. The Lord has made him king. If it weren't for that, to be honest, these verses would just sadly be more fighting in a part of the world where people are still sadly fighting today, if it weren't for that. But David is God's king. He's king after God's own heart, and that changes everything. God has just given David epic promises. We looked at them this morning. God has just said, your house will stand forever forever. David heard that, he he uncovered his ears, Uh, he heard that promise, and he knew, he saw that through him, the whole wide world would be blessed. His son would sit on the throne and be a blessing to all. Through him, justice and righteousness would come to everyone. Justice and righteousness would be across the earth like like water, Um, across and so not only is the kingdom of God inevitable, if justice and righteousness is going to come in this world, then, then, it, then the kingdom is necessary. Not only is it bound to happen, it must happen. And so these verses show that. They show David's inevitable, necessary kingdom happening, inevitable, necessary kingdom for justice and righteousness to come. And they They, they show north, south, east and west, his kingdom expanding, going out, north south east and west necessary inevitable necessary inevitable first of all we go to the north uh no sorry we don't go north we go west first of all we go west that's where the philistines live that's verse one so verse one you go west to the philistines we know already from 2 samuel chapter 5 that david has already defeated the philistines back then it was game over ko he knocked them to the ground and they never got back up again back in chapter 5. And so that's letting us know, as I said earlier this morning, these chapters aren't in a chronological order. These chapters have been arranged purposefully. They're not a day-by-day account. Um, Verse 1 could actually say, over the course of David's reign or throughout David's reign or over the time of David's reign. In other words, this chapter, what this chapter is, it's a summary of David's reign, a summary of all the fighting that he did. And one of his accomplishments, one group he cleared away, was out in the west, the Philistines. So he pushed out west. Then we go to the east. That's verse 2. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Even though the Moabites were distant relatives of Israel, they had actually been very hostile to Israel. And so God had said they were forever excluded. They were not allowed to ever come into Israel. There was one amazing exception. One amazing person was allowed. Ruth. Um, She was a woman of Moab. David's own grandmother Moab had tried to curse Israel by using the strange, weird, oddball prophet Balaam in in numbers. But instead of cursing them, whenever Balaam opened his mouth, he would accidentally bless them. What a strange story. He couldn't help but bless them. Inevitable. It was inevitable that he would bless them. Long, long before David, Balaam accidentally blessed them and he said this, A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. Moab will be conquered, but Israel will grow grow strong. Balaam accidentally cursed his own people and blessed Israel. And he said, a star will rise up. Here we are seeing that David is that star. Here we are seeing David is that scepter. He is the crusher of Moab. And let me tell you, boy, oh boy, does he crush them in this passage. Uh, These verses are very difficult verses for us today. Hard to swallow. They're quite brutal. David makes Moabite soldiers lay on the ground. He uses a a measure of rope and he measures off three units. And he kills two out of every three. The third he allows to live. Difficult verse. Let me just say a couple of quick things. Firstly, the Bible is honest in recording all of this stuff as it happens. It's honest, but the Bible never delights in it. God himself does not delight or rejoice in the death of anyone, let alone the death of a wicked, not even the death of a wicked person. That's Ezekiel chapter 18. Second, just because the Bible records it doesn't mean the Bible endorses or approves of what is being done here. So David could easily be wrong in what he's doing here when he does this killing. He could actually be making God unhappy. And about 50% of the commentaries that I checked uh, thought that he was wrong in doing this and god wouldn't have been pleased with that this is a negative thing but then third comment i don't know about that because thirdly this chapter is generally a very positive report of all david's victories it's supposed to be read as a positive chapter and so his actions here could well be seen as a positive thing in killing all these soldiers you could say um the writer is approving of it but not delighting in it if so, these killing of these soldiers was all a part and parcel of bringing justice, bringing righteousness to this land. This is all a part of bringing truth, bringing, bringing equity and fairness to this land. But even in that justice, did you notice, he still gives mercy. I In mean, ancient times, this was something that you didn't do. You didn't allow your enemy foes to live. You didn't allow the other army to get away. Even in justice and righteousness, God's kingdom is still merciful. Even on on people who have rejected his ways and stand against the Lord and against David, some are allowed to live. Um, So we've been to the west and then we went to the east and south. That was Moab. And then we go up to the north. And that's verse 3. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobar, when he went to restore his monument at the River Euphrates. David captured a 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a 100 of the chariot horses. Now this bloke here, Hadadezer, um, Hadadezer actually means Hadad is my help. Hadad was the local god of storms. If you look at this verse, Hadad wasn't really very much help, was he? If Hadad is this guy's help, Hadad really didn't offer much help. Uh, the God of storms has left him hanging. Hadadezer went up for a high five. God of storms just went no. And poor old Hadadezer just did an air swing because his God was not there. Um, it seems to suggest, if you look at these verses, that David has defeated him once already. There in verse 3. Hadidiza is goes away, licks his wounds, and returns for a rematch to recover his lost territory and his reputation. He's back. But David bashes him up a second time. Um, Even when Hadadezer calls on Damascus for help, they are no help. Verse 5, when the the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobar, David struck down 22,000 of them. Help is actually a key word in these verses. Um, It comes up a number of times, the word help. Um, They are no help is what it's saying. So we've been to the north, we've been to the south, to the east, we've been to the west. Because of these victories, the wealth of the nations is then brought into Jerusalem. Verse 7 and 8, if you, if you if you cast your eyes over verse 7 and 8, it talks about the riches of the rebellious. These are the people that don't want to submit to David, but he conquers them by force, and they are forced to bring their treasure in. Inevitable. So verse 7 and 8, the riches of the rebellious. And then verse 9 and 10 is the wealth of the willing These are the nations who recognise what's happening and they submit. Some submit, some are subdued. Some repent, some are rebellious. Some are contrite, some are crushed. Some listen to God's warning in Psalm 2, where in Psalm 2 he says, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of earth, serve the Lord with fear and with trembling, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Some have got that. Some have understood Psalm 2. Uh, Verse 11 and 12 then gives a picture of dedicating this wealth. Some have come from defeated enemies. Some have come from willing friends. And in verse 11 and 12, David dedicates it to the Lord. See, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. If he goes to the north, victory. If he goes to the south, victory. West, victory. East, victory. The Lord gives David victory wherever he goes. That's what we're told in verse 6. That's what we are told in verse 14. Literally it says the Lord saved David wherever he went. That's what this passage is all about. If he goes down the street, down the main street of Latrobe, the Lord would save him. If he, if he heads it back over this way, back towards the Lord would save him. If he goes up, if he goes down, the Lord saves him one, one way or another. The Lord saves him wherever he goes. David is the Lord's king. David's kingship belongs to and comes from the Lord. David is king after God's own heart and that changes everything because it means not only is his kingdom inevitable, this is God's king. Of course his kingdom's going to come. His kingdom is inevitable, but not only. For justice and righteousness to come, it is necessary. The world is full of injustice and unrighteousness. If that's going to change, if this injustice is going to go, if this unrighteousness is going to go, then the kingdom has to come. Not only is it bound to happen, for justice and righteousness' sake it must happen. Later on when Mary sings her famous song in Luke 2, in that song she talks about great kings and nations will be overcome and thrown down. In Mary's song. Great kings will be thrown down by the kingdom of the Lord. You know what Mary says in her song? Inevitable. Jesus tells the story of the mustard seed. I love that story. You know, it starts out as the smallest seed of all. So small it gets stuck in your teeth, and you get home from church and you look in the mirror and you go, "Oh, was that there the whole time? Oh goodness!" You know, and you have to get your toothbrush out to get the... that's how small it is. It's in your teeth. But Jesus says, by the end, it'll be a shrub. The biggest shrub in the garden, and even the birds can perch in it. That's how big it is. You know what Jesus is saying by that parable? He's saying, the kingdom is inevitable. It's going to happen. The smallest thing will one day be the greatest. Paul's letter, called Philippians, talks about how every knee will bow. Every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. You know what Philippians says? Inevitable famous, infamous book of Revelation, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Inevitable. Jesus is the Lord's king because Jesus' kingship belongs to and comes from the Lord. Jesus is king after God's own heart and that changes everything because of who he is and what he's done, his kingdom will stand. But it's not just inevitable. It's not just progress like some big multinational corporation or a new world government or something the rule of the lord isn't just inevitable for justice and righteousness sake the rule of the lord is necessary the rule of the lord it has to happen as i said this world is full of injustice it's full of unrighteousness How, however you want to tell the story i mean you can start out by you can talk about the um the goodness of the world when god made the world he made the world good and uh, and and he loved all he'd made As well as goodness and love, God instilled in our world wisdom and purpose. So there's a right way to live. Each thing has its time and place in this world. Uh, So you can start off by talking about the goodness of the world. Or on the other hand, if you don't want to start there, you actually start off at Genesis chapter 3. And you can actually start off and you can talk about human sinfulness. Because human sinfulness spoiled the goodness of the world. Humans were unwise. They, They did not have the wisdom. They could not see. They, they rejected God's wisdom and love. They rejected his law and his word, and his rule and his authority, and sinned. And now whichever spot you start, you can start at the goodness of the world or you can start at human sinfulness, but whichever place you start, what we end up with is unrighteousness and injustice in the world. If you start with the goodness of creation, then Jesus is the Lord who all the world needs. Jesus is the moment that all creation is longing for because he's coming to make new. He's coming to undo what was done by Adam. Unlock creation from its chains. He's the pinnacle of goodness, wisdom, and love. Or on the other hand, if you start with human sinfulness, equally there Jesus is needed. He comes to pay the price of our rebellion. He comes to deal with our unrighteousness, our wickedness, to cleanse us, to make us pure by His sacrifice, so we can be reconciled to God. See, whichever way you look at it, whichever way, you, whichever start of the bit of the story you start with, justice and righteousness must only come about through Jesus we need Jesus to bring that about. Um, Paul's letter called Corinthians has quite a different image so in 1 Corinthians 15 Jesus is king who will subdue all his enemies one by one every force pushed out, every force overcome every every power will be will be made under him even the power of death. Even the fact that we all die will be gone. The last and greatest enemy of them all, death, will be overthrown, and so everything will be under his control. Jesus' kingdom will be all in all. A kingdom without end promised to David. He must subdue those enemies. When I was growing up, I used to love Asterix comics. Do you guys remember Asterix? And um, the story goes that all Gaul is occupied by the Romans. Except for one crazy village of Gaulish people. And the reason they're able to resist the Romans is because their druid, Getafix, mixes them special magic potion. And whenever the Romans come near, you know, they they they, they, they punch them and it leaves their teeth and their sandals behind. They punch them, but they go flying up in the air, except for two teeth and two empty sandals. You know? And it's the idea that that all Gaul is occupied and subdued. Ah, but there's one. Ah, there's one little corner holding out. See, the thing is, Jesus' lordship cannot cannot be complete. Jesus cannot hand the kingdom back to God if there is anything that remains, if there is any sin, if there is any death, if there is any injustice, if there is any unrighteousness. If, If Jesus is to truly be lord of all, he must rule over all, which means all sin, all death must be conquered, must be ruled over. And so now you see what I'm saying? This is not just inevitable. It's necessary. Um, I received a letter by airmail a few years ago from a South African law firm addressed to me, Daniel Shepherd, And it was from a uh, a lady in South Africa. The law firm were representing a lady in South Africa. And it informed me that um, she'd left me her inheritance. It was at $7.8 million dollars. It was, a, it was a brilliant letter. I should have brought it. It had, it like, a stamp and a seal and a signature. And, and, of course, all I had to do was make contact with this uh, law firm to collect my $7.8 million. Spam. It's what we call nuisance letters, nuisance phone calls, nuisance emails, even nuisance house callers. Today we call this stuff spam. Spam. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, famously said back in 2004, he said that, quote, within the next two years we will have solved the problem of spam. He said that in 2004. Today, that is seen as one of the worst ever tech predictions. Because today, uh, what is it, um, 2004, 13 years later, it's estimated that 92% of all emails sent are spam. 92 People say that with the technology that we have, combined with human greed, we will always have spam. It is inevitable. Jesus' kingdom. Inevitable. Certain. For sure. Bound to happen. But unlike spam, which we don't need, Jesus' kingdom is necessary. If we're ever going to see justice and righteousness come, his kingdom must come. Only with him as king overall will things be as they should. Even David could not bring this about. In fact, David was never promised that he'd be the one to bring it about anyway. Do you remember? We saw it before lunch. It was his seed, it was his descendant, one from his own family who would rule forever. And that one is Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is so powerful he will even rule over sin and death. And so if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you read or watch the news and you regularly find yourself troubled when you do, I can't believe this, this is terrible. You you say things like, I thought I'd seen it all. I thought I'd seen it at its worst. I I, I thought it couldn't get any worse than it is. If, If you regularly find yourself lamenting over the horrible and bizarre things that happen and you say, I just don't understand how people can do what they do. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then become a part of Jesus' kingdom. Because his role is to put away all unrighteousness and all injustice. And he is going to do that from now until that great day at the end. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because in Jesus' kingdom you will be filled. That's what he says. If you hunger and thirst for it, in my kingdom you'll be filled. You'll be full. In his kingdom your longings will be satisfied and your desires will be met and your needs for righteousness will be complete. But how can his kingdom actually be good? Can his rule actually be good? See, this is this is a worldwide rule we're talking about here. Australians, like all people, we're very suspicious of things that are worldwide, aren't we? A worldwide company, a worldwide government, a worldwide corporation. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. I don't, want, I don't want power to be in the hands of just a few that much power to be in the hands of just a few so is his kingdom actually good will his rule actually be right well that brings us up to point two so so point one the victories he wins that was point one the victories he wins and then point two the good he brings have a look at verse 15 David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people Joab, son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zodak, son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerathites and the Pelathites. And David, David's own sons were priests. So verse 15 talks about justice and righteousness over Israel. And then 16, 17, and 18 is an example of that justice and righteousness coming verse 15 talks about his equity, everyone got the same and his care and then 16, 17, 18 is an example of that equity and care lived out and it comes out in programs, in structures in positions and people and he has himself overall as the high court where people could could bring their appeal Um, they could bring their injustice and unrighteousness to the very top it's interesting, isn't it? David knows what we know in a modern society. Part of doing what is just and right is setting things up so that people get a fair hearing, so that everyone's treated equally, that people are treated consistently. You know where you stand. See, some structure or some tribunal may look and feel impersonal. Some database that your church wants to put in place to capture everyone's needs may feel um. Uh, very impersonal to you. But if it provides for everyone to receive equal, fair and consistent care, then it can actually be very loving, very good. David's rule was inevitable. David's rule was necessary, but they, they didn't need to fear that rule, worry about that rule. Oh, maybe he's got too much power in his hands. Because his rule is justice and righteousness and equity and care. You see that in what he sets up. You also see it in who he sets it up for. So it's just what he sets up, but who does he set it up for? David rule over all Israel doing what is just and right. So it wasn't just everywhere, remember? North, south, east and west, everywhere, bringing his justice and righteousness. It wasn't just everywhere, but it was, it was everyone. It was men and women and boys and girls. All Israel received what was just and right from his hand. David's rule and kingdom was a place for all people. So you see it in what he sets up, structures. You see it in who he sets it up for, all the people. You see it in what resulted. David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for the people. Just, justice. Justice. Let me tell you, if you read the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel, this is what Israel's leaders were notoriously bad at doing, justice. You think about Saul and how corrupt he became at the end of his life. You think about some of the other judges in the books before Samuel. Justice was what Israel's leaders normally didn't do. In the books of Samuel, this comes up as something that the people don't have. Justice is is what the people deserve, though. And then righteousness was similar. Righteousness meant everything in its correct place. Uh, righteousness was a judgment. Righteousness was a truth. Righteous could still be merciful, um, but you had to acknowledge the truth, and so you didn't just sweep it under the carpet. That's not righteousness. That's not justice. you just, uh, oh, we really like Chris. Uh oh, we don't want him to get in trouble. Uh oh, look, let's just not worry about it. No, you'd say, look... It, He's done the wrong thing. Dan's done the wrong thing. He has to pay, but we will be merciful as well. So even as, you are, even as you are merciful, you don't hide the truth. That's what was happening in Israel under David's rule. That's what was taking place under his kingship. This is so extraordinary. This is something that we almost never see in the ancient world. From ancient times, in what he set up, in who it was for, in what resulted, it was an extraordinary thing. It even affected how David saw himself. It even affected how the sort of man that David became. Um, have a listen to Psalm 101, because this is actually written by David. And you have a listen to the sort of man that David has become in Psalm 101. He says, I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. "'Men of a perverse heart shall be far from me. "'I'll have nothing to do with evil. "'Whoever slanders his neighbour in secret, "'him will I put to silence. "'Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, "'him will I not endure. "'My eyes will not be on the unfaithful, "'but my eyes will be on the faithful in the land, "'that they may dwell with me. "'He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. "'No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house.' No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. I will sing of your love and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praise. I'll be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in your house with a blameless heart. Wow, that's David. He can confidently say that before the Lord. I I couldn't. I don't think I would confidently say that before the Lord. I'd be too embarrassed. I just know there are too many times in my life where I've just, I've not lived in an upright way. But here's David. I mean, look at what he's become. I will sing of your love and justice. I will sing praise. I'll be careful to lead a blameless life. I will walk in your house with a blameless heart. That's amazing. And so David's kingdom, inevitable, yes. Necessary, yes. And good. That's the other thing about it. That's the other ingredient. Inevitable, necessary, and good. George Muller was a well-known preacher and a social worker in 1800s England. Anyone heard of George Muller? Yep. He was a German, but spent most of his 92 years living in Bristol, as well as being a great preacher, usually preaching three times a week, so they estimate 10,000 10, sermons in his life. Um, he's known, actually, as well as, he, as preaching, is known for his work with orphans. Over the course of his life, he established five orphan houses which cared for 10,000 children who didn't have a mum or a dad. And according to his own words, there were three reasons why he did this orphan work. Number three was for their temporal welfare in this life. Number two was for their spiritual welfare in this life and the life to come. And number one, the greatest reason was to show how God is good and people everywhere can trust him. He said, If I, an ordinary bloke, can see to it that 10,000 orphans are cared for and have what they need, then doesn't that say something about God? Doesn't that talk about his goodness and faithfulness? If I, an ordinary bloke, and I don't have much money, but look, all these little ones receive care, then doesn't that teach us God can be trusted? Now, a cynical person might say, well, George, you're hardly an ordinary bloke. You're obviously very talented. Um, but to those who were in the moment, they did see something that was miraculous. They, they were As they were witnessing George Miller and his work, they saw something that they put down to a great work of God through this man. His first wife died. Then his second wife died. Then all his children died. And he died alone three years later. But listen to what he said on the day he found out his second wife was very sick and wouldn't last long. He said this, he said, The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. I said to myself with regard to the latter part, No good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. Well, I am in myself a poor sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Christ and I don't live in sin anymore, but I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it's really good for me that my darling wife be raised up again, sick as she is, I know God will restore her. But if she is not restored again, then that would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. So he had seen, he believed, and now he lived to show this truth. God is good and always does what is good for his people and for his kingdom. And so, yeah, Jesus' rule is inevitable. That's exactly right. He, he is going to be king overall. And, yeah, Jesus' rule is necessary It has to happen for justice and righteousness to come in this world. But we don't need to fear that like some multinational tyrant or new world order because his rule is good. His rule is justice. His rule is righteousness. Even his judgment is right. Even his judgment is good. In John's gospel, he says it. My judgment is good. My justice is right. You can trust me. His judgment is good news. Because he is the one who brings, brings this justice and he's not hard-hearted. He's not a vengeful tyrant. He's not a leader with a mixed track record. Oh, I don't know where I stand with Jesus. But he's one who is merciful and we know this because he laid down his life. When you trust Jesus, you are trusting a good Lord. Did you know that? When you trust Jesus, even his judgment can be said to be good good for you, good for this world. Did you know that? There is no mixed track record with Jesus. There's no question marks over him. There's no shady thing in the park, skeleton in the closet. You know that, don't you? It says says something to us all here um, as we close. Some of us are a bit guarded. We're cautious about who we let into our lives About the information we share about ourselves. We're private people. We're private people. Um, Some of us um, um, can be quite guarded. Uh, This is saying something to you. It says, um, Don't be guarded with Jesus. Don't be private with Jesus. Don't keep yourself back when it comes to Jesus. You don't need to fear him. You can open up your heart and let him in, you can reveal who you really are to Jesus. He's not going to abuse that information. He's not going to send it out to, um, to, the, to the lawyers over in South Africa and then they'll send you a letter like the one I got. You know, $7 million for you. He will do what is just and right by you. So it says something to the cautious, guarded, private type. He will do what is just and right. Um, some of you here aren't cautious, guarded. You, you let, you're wide open. Um, you've let him in you're so glad, you rejoice to be walking with Jesus. And that's great. You've got a great faith and you're sharing it. You're sharing it with others, you're sharing it with your children, your family. Um, That's wonderful. And I want to keep on urging you to go forward in that way. As Peter says, though you haven't seen him, you believe in him. And though you haven't looked at him, you love him. And you're filled with joy because of that. You already have a great faith and that's exactly exactly Right? And I want to urge you to keep going with that. He really will be your son and your shield. Um, now, the trick for you is um, to keep going. Don't let life knock it out of you. Keep stirring up in yourself that great faith. Uh, don't let life drain you and uh, rub off the joy that you have in believing in Jesus. The Lord God is the Son and the shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so in Jesus' name, let's now go from here and let's walk uprightly in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Shall we stand and sing together?